<clears throat> I'm thankful to live in the United States of America. Amen. I, this week we get to celebrate uh, the birthday, what we consider to be the birthday of our nation. And when you look at the heritage that we have, it's not always been a perfect nation, but it's been a nation of people who have had a heart to seek after God. And at least until recent generations, that has been the vast majority of the people. And uh, while it has its faults, I am thankful I live here. I'm thankful that we live in a country where for the first time in the history of mankind, there were granted religious rights and privileges, uh, unprecedented in the history of mankind uh, by a nation in a country. And I'm thankful we can have the Word of God without fear of persecution. We can preach it without fear of persecution from our government. And uh, I don't know how much longer that's going to last, but while it's here, let's take advantage of it. Amen? And thank God for it. And continue to pray for our country. Uh, I hope you enjoy the week uh, as we have a holiday this week and with family and friends. But I hope, as we do with most of our holidays, that we look at and realize they have a Christian foundation. I hope sometime during this holiday you will take time to set aside and thank God for the country that we live in. We, uh, we take it for granted many times. I've got a very dear friend of mine, and uh, he's in Syria. I cannot, uh, he's asked that we not use his name publicly, but he's a national Syrian. And every week, as he pastors his church, about 11 or 12 hours ago, he had to get up, and he was waiting for a phone call, and they told him to go to a certain location. And... Uh, when he got there, there would be another message, and then sometimes two or three or eight or ten. And at every stop, there are people watching him to see if he's being followed. And finally, they will meet. He never knows where the church service is going to be. And he's been arrested several times by the government, beaten literally to the point of death. The last time he was here in the States, and he and I had an opportunity to go to lunch together and was sharing some of this with me. I thought, you know, we've got people who won't come to church here because the weather's bad. Okay, but we got we got people here who won't come because the weather's good. And I hope that we don't ever take the freedoms that we have here in this country for granted, but that we will thank God for it. That being said, let's take our Bibles, if you will. First Peter chapter two. Isn't it good to be saved? If you're here this morning you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'll tell you this, God sure does love you. And uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's His desire, it's His heart's desire that we would be saved and trust Him as our Savior. He came to this earth to make a way for us to escape hell. And some people say, well, I don't think a loving God would send anyone to hell. He didn't ever intend for that. He... His intention of coming here was to give us a way to escape hell. Amen? And I'm thankful that I am saved today and on my way to heaven. I don't understand His love for me, but I am grateful for it. And we will never, never be able to repay the great debt that we owe Him. And uh, hopefully we'll just... You know, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, The love of Christ constraineth me. 
just because of the love that he had for me. That ought to be reason enough for me to dedicate and give my life to him. That ought to be reason enough for you and I to consecrate ourselves and say, Lord, I want to live for you just because of his great love for us. All right, First Peter chapter number 2. <clears throat> we'll begin reading verse number 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme. Or unto governors, as unto them that are, or as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well, for so is the will of God, that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message and speak to hearts. May you challenge and encourage us today from your word to be all that we should be for thee. Lord, I pray that at the end of this service, that we will love you more than we did when we came in this place. And Lord, that we would give you preeminence in our lives. Lord, the truth of the matter is one of the great uh, matter is the great battles of our lives is this thing of giving you the rightful place in our hearts. It's something that we struggle with daily as you tend to be pushed back and taken off of the throne of our hearts so often, I pray that you would help us to be diligent to protect that position, that we would lift you up and put you in the rightful place in our lives, that we would seek to honor and glorify you with everything that we do. 
I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide and direct and fill us with his power from on high. I pray that he will do the work in the hearts and that he will have free reign and free course to do as he would see fit in this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want us, if you will, to look in verse number 18. As Peter writes to servants, he says, Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. And this verse is a, is a verse that we don't like to read. Because the truth of the matter is, it is simple and easy for you and I many times to be pleasant and to be submitted to and to follow after those that have authority to us as long as they treat us well and they treat us right. And by the way, it's simple to do that, isn't it? You get someone that is your authority and they are fair to you and they treat you well and they treat you right. It is easy to be subject to them and to be submitted to them. But I want you to notice that Peter, in dealing with this, says not only to those that are good and not only to those that are gentle, but also to those that are froward. This would be a boss that is uh, very cruel, very mean-intentioned, or very stern, very harsh. Perhaps even a a, a master that would not even be one that feared God or followed after God. And he tells these servants to be subject to them. And then I want you to notice as we get to verse 19, he says, For this is thankworthy. That's an interesting word. This word thankworthy. This is worthy of thanks. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering, suffering wrongfully. Whose thanks is it worthy of? If we're able to endure, if we're able to go through the suffering of the froward master, and we are to patiently endure and to uh, be gracious in our suffering, who is this worthy of the thanks of? And the truth of the matter is that it is worthy of God's thanks, it's worthy of God's approval upon us. For He is the only one that we are supposed to be worried about impressing, isn't He? When it comes to worldly masters or earthly masters, we really are not trying to impress them. We're trying to impress the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all that we do needs to be in consideration of what does God think about me. When I try to measure my uh, life, my spiritual life, and to realize... And by the way, let me just say this. I think in every Christian life, there ought to be times where the next step is taken. I don't think we all ever get to the place in our Christian lives where we are trusting Christ as our Savior and we are content to stay right where we're at. But there ought to be a progression in the Christian life, adding to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and so on and so forth, and that there ought to be times of our life of growing, the Bible calls it this way, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I don't care how old we get, that growth ought to be continuous. We may be 70 or 80 years old, and you may say, Well, Brother Greg, I've been in church for 60 or 70 years, and I've grown about as far as I'm going to grow. The truth is, Paul got to the end of his ministry and said, I have not yet attained. He said, I forget those things which are behind, and I press toward the mark. The mark was the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not there yet. And he said, as long as there's breath in me, I'm going to be pursuing and pressing after the mark of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And there ought to be times in our lives where we get to the place where we say, okay, I've been here long enough in my spiritual life, Lord. I want to go to the next step. I want to go a little bit further. I want to go a little bit more. And so we come to this place where we are striving to patiently endure things that Peter brings up here as things that are wrong or froward or harsh towards us. Many people would look at it in the day and age that we live and say it's unfair. And Peter says we are to endure them patiently. Notice what it says here in verse number 20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? That doesn't glorify God at all, does it? If I do something wrong and... The payment comes for me doing it wrong. I'm punished for that. I'm chastised for that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm brought on, uh, called on the carpet for that. If I endure that patiently, nobody looks at that and says, boy, how gracious that man is for enduring it patiently, because they would look at it and say, you did the, you did the, the, uh, the, the, the problem. You, you made the problem there, and so you're just getting what you deserved. There is no graciousness, there is no exampleship in enduring patiently that which we've already earned or that which we have deserved by our own actions. But he does say this, but if when ye do well, verse number 20, if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. If when we're doing the right thing and we are criticized or we are ridiculed for it or perhaps we are chastised for it, and by the way, this is a a very pertinent message this morning because more and more we are living in a day that if you work anywhere in this society that we live in, you are going to face more and more persecution and ridicule for trying to live right. And there will be times, if it has not already happened in your life, that will be shortly happening where you will do well and you will be chastened for it and you will be criticized for it and you will be persecuted for it. These are the things that God says, for my sake, I want you to endure them patiently. And here comes the secret then of the Christian life and living victoriously. When we get to the place that our life is not about what people think about us, when we get to the place where we are not comparing ourselves by ourselves, but we are living for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in everything I do, then and only then will I be successful and victorious in my Christian life. When I get to the place where there is nothing of concern to me other than pleasing Him, When there is nothing that concerns me anymore in my actions and my decisions than hearing the words one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and until that happens in my life, I am floundering and failing in the Christian life. For you understand this, that when Christ has the rightful place in our life, He is our life. Everything that we do revolves around Him. Every thought that we have revolves around Him. Every decision we have to make, every action we have to do, every type of work that we get involved in, everything we put our resources to, everything we give our time to, everything we give our affection and our interest to, revolves around, does this glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And as God's children, that's the importance of of having Him in the rightful place in our hearts. That even when the world comes and we have done well and they rebuke us, we take it patiently. You say, Brother Greg, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to be a doormat for anybody. I I had a Christian brother I was talking to about this subject several years ago. And he made that statement. He said, well, I'm not going to be anybody's doormat. I thought, then what kind of testimony are we going to be? I walked into our our school cafeteria, Christian school cafeteria, years ago down in Florida. And one of the folks that had uh, been cooking for us and had been frustrated at some kids who forgot to order their lunch posted a sign And it said, lack of preparation on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. And I thought, how unchristian of an attitude is that? So I went to my office that day and I printed a new sign. And I taped it over the old one. And it said, lack of preparation on your part will constitute me doing everything I can to help make it right for you. You say, Brother Greg, that's, that's allowing them to just get by with, with irresponsibility. No, that's showing Christ's likeness. Because the truth of the matter is, if Christ dealt with us the way that that first sign was, you and I would be lost and on our way to hell today. The Bible says this in verse number 21, For even here and two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. Let me ask you this question. You say, Brother Greg, when somebody treats me wrong and I'm doing right, I'm not going to put up with it. I'm going to defend myself. What did Christ do? He, he suffered for us, didn't He? Did He do any wrong? Was there anything that the Lord Jesus Christ did that was wrong? Did He deserve any of it? And yet the Bible says that He submitted to them, notice what it says here, who did no sin, verse number 22, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but notice this, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. My dad used to say it this way. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how smart your parents get as you get older? My dad used to say it this way, God keeps good records. That's all it needs. It doesn't matter if anybody else sees it or knows it. God keeps good records. Verse number 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Man, I'll tell you what, Peter has a way with words, doesn't he? That we would, even if we have to suffer for righteousness' sake, that we do so patiently. Hold your finger here and turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter number 6. Daniel chapter number 6, and that was all introduction. I want to look at two things that you and I can do in our lives that will help us 
to endure patiently even when we are done wrong. Daniel chapter number 6 and verse number 10. I'm going to give you just one quick, a couple sentences here of background, then we're going to jump into the passage. There were some princes that were jealous of the position that Daniel had with the king, and they had tricked the king into writing a law that said no one is allowed to pray to any god or anyone within the next 30 days except for the king of Persia. The king of the Medes and Persians at the time was a man by the name of Darius. And so the king signs it. And, of course, Daniel, we pick up reading in verse number 10, sees this and understands what's taking place. And he says in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now I want you to notice the next four words here. As he did aforetime. This was not something that Daniel did on the spur of the moment. He didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to be faithful to God today. At this point in Daniel's life, he's already been through three kings and has served them, <coughs> excuse me, has served them all faithfully. One of the very first school shootings I ever remembered hearing about years ago was the shooting at Columbine High School. One of the young ladies that was killed there, Cassie Bernal, was said to have uh, been in the library, and when one of the gunmen pointed a gun to her and said, Are you, uh, do you believe in Jesus? She said, Yes. And he pulled the trigger, and the next moment she was in the arms of her Savior. And that story went around the country. And some people tried to refute it. Some people said that that's not exactly how it happened. But can I tell you this? We know from several weeks later when her parents went through her room and found her journal that in her journal she had written just a few days before the shooting. She had drawn the crest of the Columbine High School and she had tears flowing down it. And she had written these words under the crest of her school, Oh, that I could give my life to save my friends. Can I tell you this, Cassie Bermonal, the day that she faced that gunman in the library, did not wake up that morning, a young girl, probably 16, 17 years old at the time, she did not wake up that morning and just decide that morning, hey, I think today I'm going to serve God. If, if it comes down to it, if I have to have my faith tested, I think I'll stand for Him today. This was something that, according to the testimony of her own parents and her own family members, was something that was part of her life. It was ingrained in her that, that God was the thing that her life revolved around. Was she perfect? No, none of us are. But her heart's desire was to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we find in the book of Daniel that Daniel was a man who was a man of character. He was a man who was a man who was going to follow faithfully after God regardless of the consequences. When we read in verse number 10 here, the Bible says that he went and opened his windows, went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And as we look at the actions that Daniel did, we would all have to be in agreement, Daniel did nothing wrong. 
but something's getting ready to happen, isn't it? Daniel is getting ready to be accused and to be sentenced with harshness for doing no wrong. Then these men assembled, verse number 11, and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree in every man uh, that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, Daniel, that that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed. But maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled to the king, and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And there's the great confidence of the king. And the stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. And all of a sudden, we don't see the king quite as confident as he used to be. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions. The question that the king asks tells us two things about Daniel's character. I'm going to give you those two things and we'll be done. It tells us two things about Daniel's character that illustrate 1 Peter chapter number 2. Here's a man who has submitted to the authority God has put in his life over him, provided it did not conflict with the law of God. When given the place where there was a conflict between the authority over him and the law of God, then he was by conscience sake... Uh, at the place where it was imperative for him to follow the law of God. And so he does so. We look at that and say here he is letting his good be evil spoken of. He's getting to the place where they are trying to use that which he has done no wrong in to accuse him and to deal harshly with him. But notice what it says here as the king comes in verse number 20 and asks Daniel this question. He said, Is thy God whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee. There's two things I find in this question. Number one, when it came to the priority that God had in Daniel's life, God had a personal place in Daniel's life. We've talked about this before, that it's one thing to attend Kepha Heights Baptist Church and to say, I'm a member of Kepha Heights Baptist Church, and boy, the God of Kepha Heights Baptist Church, He sure is a good God. But this morning I want to ask you this question, is He your God? 
You say, well, I, I believe he's really done some great things for our church. Has he done great things for you? The psalmist wrote it this way. He said, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. Oh, that we would have a revival. And I believe one of the great reasons there's not sweeping revival across America today is because we have a lot of Christians who point to a God and a God maybe even that they believe in, but it is not their God. They've not held to Him. They've not embraced Him. They've not made Him the thing that their life centers and revolves around. And notice that even the king understood this about Daniel because he doesn't question whether this is Daniel's God. He states it in part of the question. He said, It is thy God whom thou servest. You say, Brother Greg, how do I know if he's my God or not? Who are you serving? Who are you serving? It will tell you who your God is. We're either serving flesh, the old nature, or we're serving the Spirit in the new nature. We're either walking after the law of sin and death, or we're walking in the Spirit. We're either following the old flesh and the old nature, or we're saying, Lord, I want your will done in my life. The question, is He your God this morning, is answered only by you. And it answers the question, who am I serving? When I look at the bulk of the time that I dedicate, the bulk of my financial and material resources that I give, where is that bulk going to? The bulk of my affections, the things that I love in my life, where is the bulk of that going to? Is it going to some hobby we have? Perhaps some workplace that we work in? Maybe some family member, some friend? The truth is, who we serve will tell us who our God is. Are we living a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Or are we living the way we want to live? And in a large part, that will tell us who our God is. One thing we find in this question that the king asks Daniel is a statement of Daniel's character that this living God that the king speaks of here was Daniel's God. And it was Daniel's God because Daniel served him. And now I want you to notice not only did Daniel serve him, but he served him continually. The second thing we find about Daniel's character is that he was a man of consistent faith when it came to his God. We find in verse 10 that the Bible says, as he did aforetime. Just because persecution was on the horizon, just because he could see it just over the hilltop, just because he realized that if he was going to do what he had always done by serving his God continually, that wrong was going to be done to him, did not deter Daniel from consistently serving his God. 
Nowhere in this verse or in this passage do we find as they are on the way to the lion's den, knowing what is coming up and knowing what is coming right before him. Nowhere do we find Daniel saying, King, I'm sorry. Let me go back and do it again. No. Daniel had faith. It was his God. And he was going to serve his God. And not only was he going to serve him, but he was going to serve him continually. You say, Brother Greg, what if, what if they do something wrong? What if, what if they do something to criticize? What if they do something to hurt my feelings? Be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. You, you see, it's easy to be faithful to God when, when that trial and trouble doesn't come, isn't it? And it will bring some glory to God. But isn't it amazing? The world sits up and takes notice. When something is done wrong to a Christian, they look at how they respond. In Matthew chapter number 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, and the similitudes, Jesus makes this statement. He says, you're the salt of the earth. And he deals with the fact that the salt may be losing its savor, is good for nothing but to be trodden under the foot of men. But he makes this statement. He talks about the candle and giving light to the house and putting it under the bushel. But he makes this statement on the second one of the similitudes. He says, you're a city that is set on a hill. And can I tell you this? Whether you want to be or not, when you trust Christ as your Savior and you are a Christian, you are a city that is set on a hill. And whether you want to be or not, whether you want the responsibility of it or not, you are already there, my friend. And the world is going to see that city. And that world is going to either see a city that is there, that is bringing grace in trials that brings glory to God, or they are going to see Christians that are defeated and living after the flesh and responding to things the way the world responds to them. Whether you've asked to be or not, that city is taking place in your life if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You are sitting on top of the hill, and the world is looking at you. You say, Brother Greg, I don't want all that responsibility. I was talking to somebody the other day, a friend of mine, and I said, Brother, you ought to do this. And he said, Oh, I don't want any more responsibility in my life. But you know, there are some things that happen in life where we don't have the choice. The responsibility is ours regardless. And one of those things is when we say, yes, Lord, I am a Christian. I'm trusting you as my Savior. We then become a city that is set on a hill. People then look at our lives. And they're either going to see a Christian who is living a victorious Christian life, or they're going to see a Christian who is defeated and deflated. One that lives after the law of sin and death. Two things that we find in Daniel's life that helps us illustrate what we've read in 1 Peter chapter number 2. Now, if you will, turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we'll finish up. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. But ye are a chosen generation. Who's he speaking to here? He's not speaking to the lost, is he? He's speaking to those that are the children of God. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How do we do that? By giving the God, God the preeminence in our lives. By making Him my God, not just the God of our church, not just the God of my family, not just the God of our country. He's my God. And I wake up in the morning, I can't wait to spend time with my God. Throughout the day, as I have trials and problems come up, I cannot wait to go to Him in prayer and say, Lord, I need some direction here. As I finish and end the day, to come to Him and say, Lord, thank You so much for Your guidance and direction today. I love the time of year where the fireflies come out, don't you? I think they're pretty. I, I was sitting in my house the other night and had the blinds cracked and I noticed for the first time, I hadn't seen them yet this season, and for the first time I noticed out of the corner of my eye a little light going outside my window there. And I, I walked outside, and boy, just the whole front yard was lit up with them about dusk. And I pulled up the rocking chair on the front porch, and I spent, oh, probably a half hour or better just sitting there, and I started praying. I said, Lord, I just want you to have first place in my heart and my life. And I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm your pastor, and I'll tell you this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I won't try to hide anything from you. One of the great battles of my life is the, the battle of being distracted to the point that he doesn't always have the rightful place in my heart. It's something that it seems like daily I have to come back and say, Lord, I need to put you right back there again. I need to make sure that everything I'm doing is doing it to revolve around you, to point men to you, to bring glory to you. And I don't know about anyone else, but that's probably one of the greatest struggles of my life. Because we get busy, we've got so many things to do. Our hearts and minds become distracted. We live in a day where it's easy to do that. Oh, that we could say, Oh God, Thou art my God. I want to give You preeminence. I want to give You the first place in my life. I want, I want You on the throne of my heart so that I can be that royal priesthood. I can be that peculiar people that will bring forth the praises of Him has called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. That I can point men to God. That I can spend time. And I would like for it one day to be said of me, as He has done aforetime, to point men to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have older men in the ministry that I look up to and that I have respect for. Many of them are dear friends, and I've gone to dinner with some of them. I was just with one the other day, just about a week or so ago. And as I got ready to leave Florida, I said, I don't know how many times this side of heaven I'll see you again. He's getting up in years. But I told him, I said, I want you to know how much of an influence you've been on my life. Because these are men that not only was God their God, 
they were consistent. And they finished well. And they grow every day, it seems like. I look at their lives and I think, Lord, I want to be like that. When I get older, I want to be still growing. I want to still be drawing closer to you. I want to still be serving you. Are we part of that peculiar people? Are we part of that royal priesthood, that chosen generation? If, if our good brings persecution, are we willing to take it patiently? We didn't read the rest of the story of Daniel, but as he comes out of the lion's den, King Darius says, this is the living God. And from now on, all the world needs to know this. Why? Because Daniel, when it came to his relationship with his God, it was personal and it was consistent. And I'll tell you, we are in a day where there needs to be a revival among God's people of giving God first place in their life and keeping it there consistently. We've got a lot of churches, a lot of Christians that do this in their life. They are on fire one day and cold the next, and on fire and cold the next. And people, when they look at our city that's set on the hill, they see a Christian that's excited about God and then cold about God, and excited about God and cold about God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it could be said of our testimony Brother Greg, does thy God whom thou servest continually, can he do the same for me? Oh, that people could say that about our testimony. Are we consistent? Is he our God? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for your word.